You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. If his offering to Yahweh is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings but shall not sever it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 590 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, and that was the very first chapter of Leviticus, which I just read for you at the top of this episode. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast 
for the past several weeks, I am on a kick this year to read through the Bible in a year, cover to cover, starting in Genesis. We've now made our way through Genesis and Exodus. Now we're into Leviticus and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That includes a chapter like this about burnt offerings. There's going to actually be several chapters <laughs> that get into the particulars of various kinds of offerings being offered to God in the Old Testament, how he prescribes those offerings to be given. Also, what pleases him, right? That's an important thing here, is what pleases God in the way that these offerings are offered based on various circumstances, which is to say that it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like every infraction, every kind of sacrifice, every kind of offering is all the same to God, as long as you do something, right? It doesn't really matter what you do. Just do something and make it intentional, and it's the thought that counts. Actually, if it's the thought that counts, then you should think of paying close attention to what it is that God has told you and instructed and <laughs> obeying. Uh, you know, if it's the thought that counts, then you won't mind actually God telling you in the particulars how he wants to be served here. You won't mind at all. And similar to what we just came through with the details of the tabernacle and the furnishings and the priestly garments, those being made and what they were made out of and what their dimensions were and what their numbers were, what their orientations were, who made them. Similarly, here, when we come into Leviticus, you're going to find that a lot of these details get to be difficult to stay interested in for the modern reader. Or they're confusing. We're just not quite sure what sense to make of these things because what is this about? We don't do burnt offerings in our day. As Christians, we definitely don't do burnt offerings because we don't need a burnt offering. We don't need any kind of offering in the way that the Levites here in the ancient people of Israel, God's people, Israel, were giving offerings making offerings, making sacrifices, but we don't need that. And so I think we come to these things and we're confused sometimes and we're bored other times and the whole lot of it, we would like to just do away with even reading because we don't need it. What is the relevance? Well, the relevance, and this is critical for understanding the place of the Old Testament literature in the life and thought of a Christian today, the Old Testament still testifies to the character of God, which hasn't changed. Just because the way he's relating to us has changed in Christ, that doesn't mean that his character has fundamentally changed. He hasn't evolved. He hasn't progressed. He's not becoming God. He is God. And he has always been God, and he will always be God, no more, no less, depending on whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But actually, insofar as these items, these instructions pertaining to burnt offerings point forward to the importance of Christ, the exceedingly good gift, which Christ's atoning sacrifice is for us who believe, who avail ourselves we should study 
the Old Testament, we should study Leviticus to appreciate all the more what we don't have to go through, which didn't even really cleanse those who went through these things uh, themselves. Even when the sacrificial system was in place, it didn't cleanse the ones who were making these offerings and sacrificing these various animals and doing it in this way and that way. It didn't cleanse them of their transgression. But we have a much better high priest in Christ, not imperfect, not prone to make mistakes, not even capable of being corrupted. We have a much better high priest having offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as we come up on Easter, this coming Sunday is Easter Sunday, the year in our calendar being 2023, Easter Sunday in the year of our Lord, 2023, maybe we should spend a little bit more time reading through Leviticus and the laws pertaining to offerings so that we appreciate how great a gift it is that we have in Christ. Maybe that would do us some good. Maybe we would breathe a sigh of relief on the other end, as we even just think about in this first chapter, someone having to do these things. You know, so many of us haven't grown up on a ranch or a farm to where when it was time for dinner, a hundred years ago, somebody might have to go out and grab one of the chickens and wring their neck and start plucking feathers and start gutting and processing Otherwise, where were you going to get the meat for your soup? Where were you going to get your meat if you didn't do the work yourself? Now, in America, in the 21st century, most of us go to the grocery store and we get chicken that's prepackaged. It doesn't look like chicken. It just looks like the final product of somebody else's doing that messy work. But as a result of that, one of the consequences of that is that most of us don't really appreciate what goes into our food coming to our table. If we didn't hunt, if we didn't grow up on a farm or a ranch or visit one, then we don't know that this is just the part of it. Now, in the case of these burnt offerings, I think another possible thought that might creep into our response to Leviticus chapter 1 and what's going to follow after Leviticus Two, for instance, three, four, five, is what a waste, right? You'll hear this sometimes with regards to any investment at all in carrying on services pertaining to worship of God. If there's any investment at all in that of materials and time and attention, people will say, well, that was time and attention and resources that would have been better spent taking care of the poor and the needy. And sometimes that is the case. I'll grant, I'll grant, but not always. And actually, when God says to do this in the Old Testament, well, then this is actually the best way you can possibly help the poor by yourself orienting yourself towards God and leading others in doing likewise. Because what's downstream of that will be much better for being charitable towards the poor and the needy and the destitute, towards those who are being oppressed. If you don't get the orientation 
of the heart towards God right first, well, then it's going to get weird and it's going to get highly manipulated and it's not going to be successful. Ultimately, your efforts to be charitable towards the poor and the needy and the destitute, those who are hungry, those who are fatherless, widows, you're not going to be successful unless you orient your own heart towards God and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But consider when Jesus is challenged with regards to the perfume that is put on his feet by Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. She comes and puts perfume on his feet and then is drying it with her own hair. And there's some disgust and indignation in those sitting around observing this, challenging Jesus, not really even correcting her, but challenging Jesus, like, aren't you going to stop her? (laughs) This is valuable perfume that could have been money better spent taking care of the poor, right? So they're disgusted by this. And what is Jesus' response? The poor you will have with you always, as in you will always have poor people. You're not running out anytime soon. But I am not going to be with you in the way that I'm with you right now. I'm not going to be with you always. And that is not to say that God is going anywhere, but it is to say that our opportunity to serve God right now is a finite commodity. It's a finite resource, which we need to invest wisely. So long as it is today, today is the only day that we can actually serve God, worship him in spirit and in truth, study his word, seek to honor him. Today is the only day. That's always going to be the way that it is. If you say, well, I'll serve him tomorrow, that's not serving him. And you can always say that. You could say that tomorrow, and then you could say it the next day, and you could say it the next day. If you just keep on saying it's going to be sometime in the future that I'll serve him, then you never will. And what is that? And if you say, well, I served him yesterday, then the question is, did you regret that? (laughs) Uh, Why are you not serving him today if you were serving him rightly and there was a reward for that yesterday? Keep on serving him today. Of course, we'll get more into the reason for these offerings and the reason for the prescription as we go along into Leviticus. But for right now, just to get us started off on the right foot, I want you to consider everything in Genesis and in Exodus as we come into Leviticus. There is disorder very often, and we need to think of the law in the Old Testament as God being a God of order, ordering his people so that they are not chaotic. We see that in the New Testament as well. God is a God of order, not a God of disorder, not a God of chaos. And he wants us to reflect his orderliness in the way that we worship him. But for now, we'll leave it there. And I actually want to move on before we get to this whole business with former President Donald Trump being arraigned and charged and entering a plea and being arrested in Manhattan yesterday. I actually want to talk just a moment about seminaries and the history of the modern seminary. And this was a question that came to me from my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, with regards to the origin of seminaries. Where do they come from? What are they about? Why do we have them? Why do so many churches 
believe that in order for a man to be a pastor or an elder, he needs to have gone to seminary. He needs to have gotten a seminary education and he needs to have the credential. He needs to have the piece of paper, just like a diploma for many professional tracks. He needs to have that piece of paper that says he is bona fide. (laughs) Oh, if you didn't know, bona fide is Latin for good faith. In law, that would be, let's say, an offer or a statement or a declaration you make in good faith without fraud or deceit. Also think sincere or genuine. According to Merriam-Webster, bona fide or bona fide, as you'll sometimes hear it said, when applied in business deals and the like, it stresses the absence of fraud or deception. A bona fide sale of securities is an entirely above board transaction outside of business and law. Bona fide implies mere sincerity and earnestness. A bona fide promise is one that the person has every intention of keeping. Now, let's talk about seminary. Did you know, as my neighbor two houses down, JP, was talking with his small group here recently about where do we get this idea from that somebody needs to go to a seminary in order to be qualified to be a pastor? Did you know that the English word seminary is taken from the Latin seminarium, translated as seedbed? Now, if all of a sudden you're starting to do some word association, you're starting to realize there are some common root words here that have to do with <laughs> seed. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that is that is where my mind was going as well, interestingly. I'll say no more about that for the present. But if you don't take my meaning, then all for the best and we'll move on. The idea of a seminarium translated as seedbed. That is an image, according to Wikipedia, taken from the Council of Trent document, Cum Adolescentium Itis, which called for the first modern seminaries. In the United States, the term is currently used for graduate-level theological institutions, but historically, it was used for high schools. Very interesting. Now, regarding this... It would seem to me as though further study is merited, warranted, needful, and will deliver a benefit. But for now, I would just go out on a limb, not having researched it further and not having time in this episode to unpack these things just yet, I would go out on a limb and say, Rome probably said, hey, we need to have some seed beds for the Counter-Reformation and Protestants said, oh yeah, well, we're going to have our own seed beds. We'll just fight fire with fire. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica Online, entry for the Council of Trent, regarding the Council of Trent, two of its most far-reaching reform provisions were the requirement that every diocese provide for the proper education of its future clergy in seminaries under church auspices and the requirement that the clergy and especially the bishops give more attention to the task of preaching. Measures were taken against luxurious living on the part of the clergy and the financial abuses that had been so flagrant in the church at all levels were brought under control. 
The appointment of relatives to church office was forbidden. Prescriptions were given about pastoral care and the administration of the sacraments. Now, a couple of things to note here, and then we'll go ahead and move on. One, it was a problem. It was a problem. Nepotism, that is, conferring of church offices by relatives who had some clout, they had some political power, they could pull some strings. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll get you that bishopric. Yeah, you betcha. And then you owe me one, basically. That's how a lot of medieval politics worked when church and state were working very closely together. We see this with Constantine and the church. We see this with Charlemagne and the church. We see this with lots of kings and emperors throughout the last 2,000 years. It's a fairly modern phenomenon that we have this idea of separating out church and state. Initially, the relationship of Christians to political power was one of suspicion and hostility. Christians were persecuted up until the time of Constantine the Great, when all of a sudden things switched pretty dramatically. And instead of Christians being the ones who were low man on the totem pole and almost any accusation against them could be believed and used to persecute them, to take their property, to remove them from positions of authority, to do violence against them, to murder them, to rape them, to enslave them, to torture them. All of a sudden, they became the favored citizens. And everyone was told, you should be more like the Christians, or you should become Christians. And all of a sudden, it was those who had been persecuting the church who were having to explain themselves and justify themselves. And very often they couldn't because they had been behaving very badly for centuries. They should have felt bad because they were bad, but they didn't feel bad until Romans 13 was being enacted according to what is good and what is evil categories, rewarding those who do good, punishing those who do evil. The Christians were doing what was good, not perfectly, but that was the aspirational model that we're given in the New Testament. That's what we were commanded. And so that's what we're aiming for. Well, give it a few centuries. Give it seven or eight centuries from Charlemagne to Martin Luther. And when church and state become codependent and the state needs the church to tell everyone to pull in the same direction towards fending off the Ottomans, for instance, for example, towards the end of going on a crusade or reclaiming some territory that has been taken by infidels, well, the state maybe appoints certain people or pulls strings to appoint certain people who are family members to high offices in the church so that everything can go smoothly, so that there is coordination that results in the favored outcomes, policies being backed and supported instead of opposed and preached against or neglected. Vice versa, the church could do the same thing and appoint certain people or recommend certain people or affirm certain people in their authority in the civil sphere or say they were excommunicated and then it was kind of open season on them, which ought not to have been the case. 
That ought not to have been the case, in my view. Now, if they were behaving badly, that's one thing. But if they're just not a Christian and they say, I'm not a Christian, and you say, well, you're out of the church then. It's like, well, were they ever really in the church in the first place? That's an important question that we should ask more often than we do. But you fast forward to the Counter-Reformation. You fast forward to the Council of Trent trying to figure out what to do with these Protestants, like Luther, for instance. And one of the things that they had to concede is, yeah, you know, there's, there have been abuses of our church government. Church polity has not been handled in an orderly way, and we need to have seminaries for training, which is to say they were basically admitting that we have a lot of people in church offices who have gotten there by nepotism and they're not qualified and they don't know what they're talking about and they're not rightly handling the word of truth. And I'm sorry, what was your argument against the Reformation in the first place again? (laughs) Seems like a lot of it depended on that being the case. And you're like, no, 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 that's not the case. But we're also going to go and change all the things that you said were problems because they are actually problems, but they're not problems, but they are problems, but they're not problems. It's messy, right? It's messy. And unfortunately, this is a a complicated subject. How much Protestants have reformed of what came down to us by tradition in the tradition of Rome in particular and of the West, Western Christianity, so influenced by the Romans and the Greeks There's a providential aspect to it that we should be careful not to just throw out babies with bathwater regarding. There is something providential here that God has blessed us with to be inheritors of, but then we also need to be cautious not to be embracing things as though they go together if they would corrupt our expression of Christian life and thought. And this is an example of one of those things. Just like you can have nepotism with regards to a person appointing to church office their actual blood relative, you can also have a kind of nepotism where certain institutions say, well, we have these favored ideas and we have this favored agenda and we want to appoint men who are not just faithful to the word of God, not just faithful to Christ, but they are going to be faithful to the promotion of our particular brand, our agenda, our glory. We should take more care and watch out more than we very often do with regards to that. There's this tendency, and it's been with us for 2,000 years, towards selfish ambition and vain conceit, which we're told to do nothing from, nothing out of, nothing due to, nothing motivated by. Whereby in the early church, we're not even out of the first century AD, and the early church has people feuding with each other about, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I am of Jesus. And Paul says, you guys are acting in an entirely carnal way. Like you don't even have the spirit to be bickering with each other about who was baptized by who and who's following whose tradition. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? I'm glad that I didn't baptize any more of you than I did, lest you would be bragging about having been baptized by by me. Uh, You know, like that... That's in the New Testament, and it's also with us today. And seminaries, hey, if they're giving a good, high-quality theological education in many cases, that doesn't mean that 
they're not giving other things that are not always so good. Like, for instance, if somebody's coming out of seminary looking with disdain on the Christian who is studying independently the Word of God and church history, looking down on them and being dismissive towards them and not even hearing what they have to say, we should remember that whatever you want to liken to seminary in the New Testament, there weren't actual seminaries. Yes, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples were with Jesus getting a rich theological education for three years, we estimate. That doesn't mean that that's what seminaries are always providing. Let's not put seminaries on such a high pedestal as to say that that's just like seminary. There are lots of ways to walk with Jesus for three years. Paul, for instance, goes to Arabia. You could say, oh, well, see, that was like a seminary. It's like, oh, fine, but it's not cookie cutter. That's the point. And so if you do have men who have just been studying faithfully the word for their entire Christian life, and they've been found to be respectable men, able to teach, managing their households well, you can raise them from within the congregation in a way that's not nepotistic, and it's not just you picking people who aren't going to call you out for certain things that you have a proclivity towards or you like to do and you don't want to feel guilty about, you don't want to be challenged on. Take care, right? Take care. There are ways to be tempted any way you go with this, and that includes in seminaries, and that includes outside of seminaries. We should know that. Moving on, some current events items. Uh, Interestingly, and this is on the way to actually talking about this business with Trump being arraigned in Manhattan yesterday. Joseph Curl over at the Daily Wire posted a piece, an opinion piece yesterday about a French politician who has championed a ban on catcalling and yet is set to appear scantily clad on the cover of Playboy magazine. You heard that right, right? This is what feminism has come to that Women are told to prove how liberated they are, to prove how free they are, to not be objectified by flaunting their bodies. Uh, Emily, I think you say her last name, Ratajkowski, 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 I don't know how you say her last name, Uh, model, right? Um, She's one who I think has done a very similar thing. Lots of beautiful young women these days are doing a very similar thing where they say, I am a woman and I am tired of being objectified. Now, to prove how immune I am, how tough I am, how independent I am, I'm going to pose for sexy pictures that are going to be all over the public. And then I'm going to tell you, don't look, right? This is like face tattoos. And I've heard, uh, I think it was Ben Shapiro talk about this. There's this face tattoos trend which we've seen increasing in recent years. The normalization of criminality perhaps is driving that. But people get face tattoos and then they complain when people are staring at their face tattoos or treating them a certain way with respect to their face tattoos. If they're intimidated by them, the complaint is, well, you shouldn't judge me based on my face tattoos. And it's like, you've got five teardrops tattooed on your right cheek, like you've killed people. 
what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like you've killed people and you're keeping a tally like some World War II fighter ace. <laughs> Mark's uh, Japanese zeros downed on the side of his plane. You got to be kidding me. Well, it's a very similar thing with regards to women. I think it expresses itself differently. Women are not typically the ones to do the face tattoo thing. That's more of a guy thing. But what women increasingly are doing as an expression of the same sentiment, the same zeitgeist, the same spirit of the age, is they are flaunting their bodies in a very sexual way. And then if men respond by saying, wow, hubba hubba, then it's the men who are the pigs. But it's a setup, right? It's a setup and it's disingenuous and it is nonsense. It's nonsensical. But here we have in France, this Marlene Schiappa, who serves as the secretary of state in charge of social and solidarity economy in France. She made her name campaigning against women being catcalled on the streets. That, that's how she made her name was saying, well, women shouldn't be talked to that way. Women shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable like that. Women shouldn't be objectified and harassed in public just because they're attractive, good-looking, well-dressed, even sexy. And it's like, okay, if you make a decision to dress in what you have decided is the fashion, and it just so happens that the fashion is to look very sexy and very seductive, you don't then get the right to turn right around and say, oh, but don't say that I'm sexy right? Don't be seduced. I'm going to be seductive, but don't you dare be seduced. It's coquettish, right? It's coquettish. If you don't want to be catcalled, I don't want you to be catcalled, right? That's uh, that's a two-way street here. I would agree. Let's not catcall women, you know, the construction workers stereotypically working on some project, whistling at some beautiful woman walking on the sidewalk in front of their work site. Ow, ow, right? That kind of a thing. Hey, sweetie. Hey, can I talk with you? What's your number, right? That's catcalling. That's what this is. I I think it's objectionable. But the flip side is, <laughs> the flip side is, it's not only men who have a responsibility to be considerate of women. Women also should be considerate of men. And there's a kind of contempt that is being shown towards men in women dressing in very sexy ways and then calling men pigs if men are like, oh, wow, yeah. I am a sexual creature as well, right? Women are wanting to express themselves in a sexual way, but also wanting to dominate men and manipulate men. And it's an evil thing and it should stop. It should stop. Moving on. Back to the United States, Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire shares a little segment here where Marjorie Taylor Greene, congresswoman from Georgia, Republican from Georgia, is interviewed by 60 Minutes and gives a brief summary of her thoughts on the Democrat Party today. I'm going to go ahead and play this. This will be cut one. You can take a listen for yourself. Here is how that went. 
and things she says that are over the top, like... The Democrats are a party of pedophiles. I would definitely say so. They support grooming children. They are not pedophiles. Why would you say that? Democrats, Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, supports children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Wow. Okay. All right. So here we go. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene tweets out April 1st. In order to protect our nation's children from gender lies and permanent damage to their bodies, we must pass my bill, Protect Children's Innocence Act. My bill will make it a felony to perform gender-affirming care on minors under the age of 18. Stop damaging puberty. Okay, now here's where we need to just take a step back and consider what all is in the mix here. There has to be an objective reality that is impartial. That is not just about what do you want and how quickly can we give it to you. That's not just about affirming your feelings, but is about saying, regardless how we feel, reality is such and such, and we need to act accordingly. Every aspect of our lives on an individual basis, our lives in institutional ways, our lives in organizational ways, our lives as a people, as a nation, as a culture, as a country, every aspect of our lives will break down if we are starting from how do I feel, what do I want? Start with reality as it is, then work to figuring out what you should want accordingly. But when we reward and affirm people living in an unreality we're giving them tangible rewards that are part of reality to affirm nonsensical, untrue statements that they're making that are an unreality. We're mixing reality and unreality together, and we will not get the unreality to become reality that way. We'll get the reality to become unreality that way. When you mix in some lies with truth, you don't get the lies to be true by virtue of being in proximity to truth. What you get is something closer to the truth becoming a lie because it's mixed in with a lie. That's how we need to think of it. It's a contamination piece. Now, if it were the case that we confront lies with truth and then those lies can be corrected, that would be one thing. But instead, what the Democrat Party wants is to confront the truth with lies and for the truth to give way because this is actually a very satanic movement. It's not just that Democrats are the party of pedophiles. It's that the Democrats increasingly are the party of Antichrist. Change my mind. Change, I'm, I'm going to take a cup of coffee here and sip. Change my mind. What we have downstream of the Antichrist push among Democrats in this country is pedophilia and every other kind of corruption, every kind of perversion. But it's not upstream that you work with feelings to correct that. And my concern for Republicans and for conservatives would be that we say, ah, well, we can do that too. <clears throat> you know, we can focus on people's feelings and 
the power of the soft sell and propaganda and implying or insinuating more than we're willing to directly state, we can do that too. Now, maybe we can, but if the core of what's broken here remains unchanged and actually is affirmed thereby, then we're actually not fixing the problem. We're not solving the problem, I would say. But then you've got this business with the 60 Minutes segment, and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene being put on the spot and then chided in a, in a motherly way. No, how can you say that? The Democrat Party is not the party of pedophiles. Why, why would you say that? And Marjorie Taylor Greene's answer is actually quite good. It's quite succinct, quite matter-of-fact, quite plain and to the point and correct. I know that the Democrats are the party of pedophilia because they are sexualizing children. That is what pedophiles do. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do. They're normalizing of the sexualization of children is of a piece with the pedophilia bit. They want to do it in the schools. They want to do it in popular culture. They want to do it in the medical establishments. They want to do it in broader society. They are pedophiles. Yes. Interestingly, according to Wikipedia, pedophilia is a psychiatric disorder in which an adult or older adolescent experiences a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to prepubescent children. Let me just say that again. An adult or older adolescent experiences a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to prepubescent children. What would that translate to with the Democrats, if not what it is that they're doing? If not them wanting to give puberty blockers to boys and girls and mutilate their bodies with regards to their sexuality, if not talking with them at length about sexuality everywhere, all the time, if not touching them sexually and talking with them about sex and insisting that they are sexual creatures from birth, which is what comprehensive sex education affirms, that children have a human right to sexual expression, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump to consenting to sexual relations with adults. If that's not grooming, then what is, ladies and gentlemen? If that's not grooming, then what is? But of course it is. Marjorie Taylor Greene is exactly right. Now, I'm going to talk briefly about two passages, two verses in the Bible, and then we will move on to the Trump arraignment business. And then I got to run. Proverbs 18.23. First, the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Something you need to understand about Donald Trump, and we'll expand on this here in a minute, but he's rich. He answers roughly. Proverbs 18.23 tells us to expect that. A lot of us who are poor, who are accustomed to being poor, we come from generations of poor people, we are used to using entreaties. We are not used to having any kind of real power, strings to pull, to answer roughly and say, no, this is how it's going to be. We are not used to giving commands and expecting those commands to be ordered or else you're fired. Or else I'll sue because I've got lawyers. I have a team of lawyers who are just on a constant retainer and I will sue you. You cannot breach our contract. You cannot do this thing. You cannot say that about me because it's not true. I'll take you to court. I will get damages. 
Don't do that. Right? The rich answer roughly. Why? Because they can. The poor use entreaties. Why? Because they must. <laughs> because we, <laughs> we must. Now, how does the Christian relate to this when we see in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit? I don't think that that's a goal to shoot for, to be poor in spirit, which is to say brokenhearted, which is to say broken, but it's to say if you already are, because you're seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and you're persecuted for righteousness sake, well, then you're blessed. But the goal is not to be persecuted. The goal is not to be broken. The goal is to be made whole and restored actually. And if we are seeking the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things are going to be added unto us, and we're expecting that, well, there is a sense in which that inspires boldness along the same lines that Proverbs 18.23 is talking about. And I am not making a judgment here regarding Trump and his standing before God, whether he's a Christian or he's not a Christian. Boy, howdy, is that a whole episode just waiting to be recorded for this podcast. No, my interest is in how Christians respond to this whole business of his political career to this point. Ever since he came down the escalator at Trump Towers and announced that he was running for president, how have Christians related to the way he relates to people in the public, whether it's a good example or it's not a good example, whether it's at all excusable or never. There's never any excuse for talking the way he talks, acting the way he acts, relating to people the way he relates to people, there's never any excuse for all the scandals that surround him. My interest would be in what lessons we glean from his situation, not first and foremost, whether you approve of the man. Because what we don't want to do is, again, we don't want to throw babies out with bathwater. How would it be with regards to uh, the seminary business? If we say, ah, well, the seminaries, those were a product of the Counter-Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent wanting to create seed beds for resisting Protestantism. And therefore, Protestants shouldn't have seminaries. Ah, wait a second. Not so fast. Not so fast. <laughs> let's, let's not throw babies out with bathwater there. Uh, how would it be if we said, oh, here's this French politician who is against catcalling and also going to do a cover of uh, Playboy to show and prove how liberated she is as a woman. She doesn't need your approval. She doesn't need no man. And she's free to do what she wants. And don't you dare comment on it. You know, what we shouldn't do with that is say, ah, well, she's going to appear on the cover of Playboy. And I don't want to be associated with any of the views or opinions of somebody who would appear on the cover of Playboy. And so therefore, I am against her efforts to put a stop to catcalling. Now, we can disagree about ways, right? Somebody catcalling in France under the law that she helped to press for could face immediate fines of up to $871. Immediate fines. That's, man, that is a stiff penalty. It would be foolish to say, because I agree with her on the whole catcalling business, therefore, I must affirm her appearing on the cover of this magazine. Or to say, because I disapprove of her appearing on the cover of this magazine, therefore, I am for catcalling. Ah, no, stop it. Stop it. Stop that. Now, moving on. 
1823 in the Bible, this one from Revelation. Revelation 1823, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Now, here's an interesting thing, okay? My wife pointed this out to me last night. She said, hey, do you know what this word for sorcery actually is in the Greek? Do you know what that word is? Could you guess what that word is? (laughs) I, for one, will hazard a guess, I will hazard a wager that you're not going to believe this. So this passage is referring to Babylon, starting in verse 9 of chapter 18. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. This verse 23, though, again, speaking of Babylon, the new Babylon, when we see the word sorcery, that all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, Babylon, that word is pharmakeia. Hmm, pharmakeia. What English word we're all familiar with does that sound like? It sounds like pharmacy. <clears throat> now, what was I just saying about not throwing babies out with bathwater? What I'm not saying is, aha, oh, pharmacies. I, you know where I hate to go, the doctor's office and the pharmacy. And now I realize all this time, it was just the spirit. It was my discernment warning me that modern medicine is witchcraft. Uh, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Not so fast. Let's back up, 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 back up. The point is not that taking medicine is some sinful thing, some wicked thing. Now, you should read the warnings on the label. You should be cautious about new drugs and certain vaccines, which are reported to cause myocarditis and death due to myocarditis and blood clots and strokes and things like that in the many people who were required to take them if they wanted to keep their job or stay enrolled in a school, go out in public or travel. You should be careful and not just trust blindly the so-called settled science. But also note here that medicine is really kind of subjective, You know, somebody tells you you're very, very sick and you say, well, how do you say that I'm sick? And they say, well, because you affirm traditional gender roles, right? And those are oppressive and we need to liberate you from those traditional gender roles. Now, that kind of medicine, that kind of medicine that they're going to try and prescribe you, let's say if you're a child to prevent you from going through puberty or if they're going to give you anti-rejection meds because they've just changed out some of your physical hardware to transition you, to affirm your gender identity, so-called, well, then that kind of medicine is actually witchcraft. That's a kind of witchcraft right there. Stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft, we read. And that is to say that somebody who, despite all of the evidence, all you got to do is just look down. Just look down. Nope. I don't accept that, (laughs) 
right? That's you are stubborn, right? If looking at your own physical anatomy, you refuse to admit that that is how you were born. That's how God made you. That's who you are. You should be content in that. You should embrace that. You should look for ways to steward that in a way that honors God and the people around you. If you won't admit that, you are stubborn. And God's word tells us that stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, it does, admittedly, depend on your translation. Of course, as many things, whether this is rendered stubbornness or defiance or arrogance, pride, self-will, presumption, right? That matters. It matters. But the point is, it's a rebellion against God. And insofar as pharmakeia, sorcery, really has to do with looking to some other authority besides God's authority to be your supreme authority, having other gods before the Lord your God, the Most High God. It's an interesting thought to consider how, as Arthur C. Clarke once said, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And we have some pretty magical technology these days. And how would it be if we supposed that there's nothing that translates. There's nothing that translates. When we see in Revelation 18.23, Babylon having deceived all the nations through sorcery. How would it be? Pharmakeia, medicine, if in a proper context, poison, if coming from a place of bad motives and malice. Interestingly, in every instance in the New Testament, all three, this word pharmakeia appears three times in the New Testament, once in Galatians 5.20, twice in Revelation. The second time is the one I just read for you, Revelation 18.23. First place it occurs is Revelation 9.21, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Galatians 5.20, you may recall, is where we see a list of the deeds of the flesh. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is pharmakeia. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if medicine has a good place, we should not just say, well, because sometimes there are side effects and sometimes people use medicines in an abusive way, either they get addicted to them or they use them to hurt other people intentionally. Therefore, I want nothing to do with medicine. Well, wait a second. If you're sick or someone you love is sick and there's a good medicine for it that will help them, I would say that's not the same thing. That is not the same thing at all. Where are you getting it from? What are the side effects? What's the intent? Is this a act of false worship? It doesn't have to be. It really doesn't have to be. Moving on. Much more we could say on that, but we won't because for the sake of time, we need to get on to this business with the Trump indictment. So Trump has been indicted. He appeared in court yesterday. His massive motorcade pulled up to the courthouse. Protesters and counter-protesters were there yelling at each other, chanting slogans, banging drums playing music, holding signs. 
Helicopters flew overhead. The whole city is in turmoil as a result of this. The whole country and the whole world by extension will be shaken by this. There's just no getting around it. This is for the United States of America since 1776, unprecedented. And who knows what happens next? Who knows? But I'm going to go ahead and play a number of clips back to back. I'll separate them out with a little beep between so you know where one ends and the other begins. And then we'll talk about some of the media reaction and how this was presented and reported on yesterday. So without further ado, here is Supercut One. sad day for America. Hard stop. This is no time for celebration. Uh, you know, I think it's sad. I have fought Trump for a long time, but I'm sad that this has happened. How are you feeling about a historic day? I, you know, it's it's sad. And this is a day of profound sadness that an ex-president uh, is indicted, but it's also a time to celebrate. Because it's a sad moment to see a former president have to do this, even though we feel it could lead to justice. If, 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 you, if you don't see this, it's a sad day for America. It's a sad day for America. It's a sad day. Well, I don't think anybody can consider it a good day. Regardless of anything, it's just really sad. It's a sadness, I, I think, uh, that we got to this point. I just want to remain measured. The left, full of somber support. I think, really, this should be a somber moment. It is a serious, somber, solemn moment. It's obviously a somber moment, and it's a, it's a sad moment. Well, it's really a sad day when we get to this point. Incredibly sad day for our country. It is a serious night and a somber moment for our country. So this is a really sad moment and a perilous moment. I mean, I, I think it is a sad day. It is a sad chapter. And I think it's worth taking a pause for a moment and recognizing the moment that we're in that we've never been in before. And that is that when he walked into that courthouse and he was escorted officially, Donald Trump, former president of the United States, front runner for the Republican nomination for president of the United States is now under arrest. We've never seen it before. It is a sobering moment. And even though he's very consistent, sending out social media posts from the car saying again, seems so surreal, wow, they are going to arrest me. Can't believe this is happening in America. You could shorten that and say that for Donald Trump, perhaps he can't believe this is happening. He did not believe certainly in this case from the reporting from inside that this was going to happen. And it has now happened. Donald J. Trump is under arrest. Andrew Weissman, your thoughts. One of the first officers arriving, and now we see the SUVs here pulling up Anderson. And they are pulling up here now to the door. Can you guys stand back? And we see uh, several of the SUVs here, Anderson, pulling up 
to the corner, and the former president, Donald Trump, is about to step out of this SUV and enter the Manhattan DA's office, where he will be placed under arrest. And here it is, uh, from what we can see, a uh, couple of the Secret Service agents now getting out of their cars uh, here down the street on Hogan Place in front of the Manhattan DA's office. And there he is. And he just waving to the crowd. There he is. We can see him here, Anderson. And his back is to us, and we can see him slowly yeah. walking down. Shimon, we have an over the head shot that we're looking at now of the former president walking down uh, with several of his Secret Service officers walking into the building. And Karen, you're saying as soon as he enters that building, he is technically under arrest? Yes. He's, he will be in the custody of the DA's office investigators, obviously with his Secret Service guard as well. And he will be told he is under arrest and he is in their custody at this time. So at this moment at 1.24 p.m. Eastern Time, Donald J. Trump is under arrest. He, he looks sad. Yeah. He looks sad. Uh, he looks like um, uh, the weight of it is hitting him. And, you know... Uh, just as a human being, I, I don't, I don't take, I don't take joy. I don't like the prison system. I don't like what it does to people. I don't like this process. So I don't take any celebration in seeing uh, him looking that way. He looks sad. Now, does it mean that he, accountability is not owed? We don't know what he's going to be charged with. There's a, there's a lot more, but at that moment, that is not a conqueror. Uh, that is a, a granddad having a very bad day. And cut. Now, if you've seen a picture of Trump from yesterday holding a fist up, that's where Not to Be, and thank you to Not to Be for embedding all of their videos that I just played the audio for you from. That's where Harris Rigby over at Not to Be, uh, I think, is doing a great service to people like myself who are not able to get on. Twitter anymore. We're not able to participate in the public discourse on Twitter. We're not able to share, for instance, episodes of uh, podcast to Twitter because we don't have access to Twitter. Uh, thank you, Harris Rigby, for embedding these tweets from the Post Millennial, from Tom Elliott, from Citizen Free Press, from CNN, from Philip Lewis. But the screenshot at the bottom is from the live coverage on CNN where Van Jones is speaking there at the last, uh, the last clip that I played for you. Van Jones, former Obama administration official, also a communist, literally a communist. He says he looks sad. He looks like a granddad on a bad day, having a very bad day. Uh, Trump looks sober, but... He looks serious. I don't say he looks sad. I agree with Harris Rigby. I would not say he looks sad. He looks serious. He looks solemn. He looks like he's determined. And, you know, it's curious. Some of the tells here, some of the giveaways are when Van Jones says, I don't like the prison system, so I don't like this process. Is Trump going to prison? Is that what we're going to do with the Republican frontrunner? The guy who is ahead in the polling who probably would be president in 2024 
if Democrats were fair and believed in an equal application of the law, if the media were honest, but are they going to let him? Are they going to pull out all the stops to prevent that from happening? Are they going to leverage every bit of power and influence that they have to try and stop it from happening? It certainly looks like that. It certainly appears so. Uh, Here's a clip. This will be cut to of New York City District Attorney Alvin Bragg, the one who is making the decision to put Trump through this, to subject Trump, and by extension, his supporters, his voters, the Republican Party, and the United States of America to all this. Here is DA Alvin Bragg speaking on the facts of the case as he sees them. Take a listen. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. Okay, so you heard it right from DA Bragg himself. They will not normalize criminal conduct, serious criminal conduct in the state of New York. Also, Fox News reported, DA Bragg downgraded over half of felonies to misdemeanors in 2022. And crime is soaring in New York City. District Attorney Alvin Bragg is one of the George Soros-backed district attorneys we've been hearing so much about in the U.S. in recent years, obstructing justice. But then it really depends on your definition of justice. It really depends on what you believe justice is, that it would be served, whether you think Alvin Bragg is doing the Lord's work here, or whether this is a miscarriage of justice, whether this is an injustice. A passage of scripture to consider here is Proverbs 20.10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to Yahweh. An abomination. What is the point of having weights and measures if you're not going to weigh and measure the facts of a case and apply the law equally to people irrespective, whether they are your friend or your enemy, whether you like them or you dislike them, whether you would vote for them or you think it would just be the worst thing ever for them to be the next president or president again. (laughs) What is the point of weights and measures if it's all the same? Also, how can you have weights and measures if we're going to weigh more heavily when somebody is poor or if they're rich, or if their skin is a certain color, or based on their gender identity, or their sexual identity, based on their political power. How is that not unequal weights and unequal measures, which are both alike an abomination to Yahweh, to consider those peripheral details? How is that not definitionally unequal weights and measures? The social justice warrior on the left, in our day, we'll say unequal weights and measures is what we've had for decades or centuries or millennia in the West. And so they're actually fixing it. They're correcting it by going after somebody like Trump or anybody connected with Trump for the last several years. They're correcting it. They are delivering justice. It is justice that is being served by Alvin Bragg. But this gets back to so many things that I've been podcasting and writing about for years. 
social justice, as the left defines it, is not justice, and it is not sociable. It is a contradiction in terms. It is self-defeating, because there is no reason which satisfies so long as you check certain boxes. If intersectionality means that we give preferential treatment to certain people based on their protected class and the perception that they are a minority, and the more they can multiply their minority status, the more protected they'll be and the more we will grade on a curve their actions, their behaviors, giving them more credit if they do something good compared with if they didn't have those special status indicators, giving them less penalty if they misbehave, if they behave badly. Well, so also, if somebody has none of those, if they are perceived to be part of the oppressor class, as Howard Zinn would write in his People's History of the United States, again, another communist, if they are part of the oppressor class because they're a straight white male, especially if they're a Protestant Christian and wealthy and affluent, and they have political power, we're going to count their misdeeds or allegations against them with extra severity. We're going to count their achievements, their good achievements, for nothing. How is that in keeping with Proverbs 2010? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. Those are different weights and measures. Those are unequal weights and measures, which are an abomination. Not just... Well, you know, hey guys, like I would appreciate it if you didn't. No, no. God says they're both alike an abomination. This is the definition of injustice. To downgrade half of all felonies in New York City in 2022 to misdemeanors, but then to elevate what is dubiously charged as a misdemeanor into a felony because it's Trump, because you don't like Trump, because you want to stop Trump, to do that for the whole country to see, for the whole world to see, is rebellious. It is seditious. It is treacherous. It is revolutionary. Because what these people are trying to enact is a revolution. It appears revolutionary because it is revolutionary, because they are trying to upend all of American history and, by extension, all of the history of Western civilization. They are trying to upend world history. They are playing for all the marbles. And this is not just a problem for Trump. This is a problem for all of us. You know, what's curious is even Mitt Romney, thanks to Edward Teach over at Not To Be for highlighting this, even Mitt Romney, who is no friend to Trump, is saying, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. And I quote from the statement by Mitt Romney, I believe President Trump's character and conduct make him unfit for office. Even so, I believe the New York prosecutor has stretched to reach felony criminal charges in order to fit a political agenda. No one is above the law, not even former presidents, but everyone is entitled to equal treatment under the law. The prosecutor's overreach sets a dangerous precedent for criminalizing political opponents and damages the public's faith in our justice system. The charges and evidence will be duly considered and the outcome decided by a jury with an obligation to fulfill its responsibility with the utmost care and impartiality the American voters will ultimately render their own judgment on the former president's political future. Finally, it is also incumbent on all elected leaders. It is also incumbent on all elected leaders to discourage violence and anger in response to the situation. Now, this last bit, 
um, you know what? Some things should make us angry. It should make us angry that the radical left is trying to destroy the United States of America. That should make us angry. This is our country. Somebody were trying to burn my house down. I would think that would be cause for being angry. But to Mitt Romney's point, what does James say? Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It does not produce the righteousness which God requires. Now, he says, it's incumbent on all elected leaders to discourage violence and anger in response to the situation. That is to say that this situation is very liable to provoke a angry, violent response. These are uncharted waters for the United States of America, but they're not uncharted waters for other countries throughout history. In fact, this has happened quite often in other countries throughout human history. It's unusual that it hasn't happened sooner here in the U.S. It happening now here in the U.S., one could reasonably suppose might produce the same effects such things have produced in other countries where these kinds of things have been done. That is to say, anger and violence. And there's a kind of bait and switch when the Democrat Party says, we're saving democracy, but what they really mean is, we're saving democracy from the demos if we don't like how the demos would vote. We want pure democracy, unless it produces outcomes that are not favorable to our agenda, in which case we reserve the right to suspend democracy, we'll declare an emergency, we'll suspend democracy, and in the end, you'll know that we're right. You'll see. You'll see. And if you don't, well, then we'll call you the revolutionary ones. We'll say that you're the ones who are subverting the rule of law. Where does this go? Where does this go if it's not going to go to violence and anger? If this is not headed towards civil war, where is this headed? That's an important question. If it turns to, well, we all just shrug and say, well, Trump, you know, he made a lot of people upset. He made a lot of people mad. If it turns into Democrats assassinating the president of the United States, for instance, or throwing him in prison for the rest of his life, or making sure that he can't be president again in 2024, isn't that something of a tell that they worry he would actually win in 2024? if it were a fair race, if they weren't pulling out all the stops to prevent that. And if we don't actually have legitimate, honest, fair, above-board democratic elections anymore, but we have the claim being made that we do, and Democrats do more and more of this, not just to Trump, but to everybody, everybody who's a conservative, everybody who's a Republican, they just go digging, fishing endlessly, and then we're the ones, like Nancy Pelosi said, Trump will have his day in court. He'll have an opportunity to prove his innocence. Now he must prove his innocence. Wait a second. No, it's not on him to prove his innocence. That's not the legal tradition in the U.S. The legal tradition is you're innocent until proven guilty. You're presumed innocent. And it's the state's job. It's the state's responsibility to prove your guilt, not the other way around, not your job to prove your innocence. But this is the difference between Democrats and Republicans as well, or at least the difference between our principles as conservatives in this country and the principles on the left. 
And if you take away our ability to express our political differences in a normal election cycle, and you set this kind of a precedent, then where does it go if not a civil war? How does this not go to a civil war? That's my big question. Because it can't keep on like this. It's going to have to settle into some new paradigm. And when Democrats refuse to play ball, if they don't get what they want, and if what they want increasingly is to just destroy anybody who would disagree with their agenda, the pacifist will say, okay, well, I guess you'll have to just destroy me then. GG, good game. But the people who are not pacifists are going to say, if you're going to try to destroy me, I have a right to defend myself. And if you're going to try to destroy the people that I love and I care about, well, I have a right to defend them too. And so I guess we're just going to have to fight. And I'm not calling for violence. And I'm not saying I want that outcome. But I'm saying when we look at history, when we look at where these kinds of things go, let's say in ancient Greek city-states or in ancient Rome, we do find precedent. It might be unprecedented here in the U.S., but students of history will note it's not for no reason that Mitt Romney is saying we should discourage violence and anger in response to the situation. Not for no reason. Changing gears a little bit, but not entirely. You may have heard that Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, has enlisted Dylan Mulvaney, who is a man who has decided to become a woman and is a big deal on TikTok. And he's been invited to the White House. He's been hailed as some kind of a hero for being delusional and depraved. Dylan Mulvaney is going to be a spokesperson for Budweiser. And Kid Rock took a semi-auto. Looks like it might be an MP5, if I'm not mistaken, Uh, Fully auto, not semi-auto, fully auto. That's where you just pull the trigger once and it just keeps on firing until you're out of bullets. Uh, Kid Rock took an automatic to, I think, some kegs and a 12-pack of Budweiser on a table in a video he posted to the internet, to his social media. Just to let us all know, in case we weren't clear on how he feels about Budweiser and Anheuser-Busch making Dylan Mulvaney a spokesperson for them. He also used a little bit of colorful language very succinctly to express his sentiments. What I haven't heard anybody commenting on just yet is that that sentiment really is not first and foremost about the beer. This is about a conflict of visions and increasingly a contempt that one half of the country feels towards the others. Vision, agenda, prescription, worldview, priorities, principles, etc. There's a contempt. And that contempt, that anger, that hatred, that animosity, at a certain point, it bubbles over if there's not something to make peace. You know, going back to Leviticus, let's talk again, and then I got to run, about Leviticus chapter 1, and think about how orderly the laws for burnt offerings are. They might make you squeamish. They might make you cringe a bit if you're not used to killing animals or processing animals. I've hunted, and so I have shot deer and 
gutted them in the field and taken them home and processed them, turned them into delicious meat for my family. If you haven't done something like that, you might look at these laws for burnt offerings and say, ugh, ugh, yuck, gross. They did that kind of stuff all the time. God told them to do that kind of stuff all the time. That's barbaric. It's awful. Well, no, actually, what's even more awful is our sin. What's even uglier and more grotesque and abominable and detestable to God is our sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, as Christians, we have access to a right standing with God again through the blood of Christ, but it is not grace that we might sin. Shall we sin that grace might abound all the more? By no means, Paul says. But it's grace that has set us free to live for God. And for those who don't believe in any such atonement, and yet still know instinctively that the shedding of blood is necessary for the remission of sins, there's only one way it can go, ultimately, and that is the shedding of the blood of someone to make things right. There's a lot of sin in this country. There's a lot of sin in the United States of America, which will demand an atoning sacrifice. As Christians, we should be pointing people to the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we celebrate this coming Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the dead that we as Christians have hope in Christ for. Good Friday, the day after tomorrow, we remember the crucifixion of Christ, his death and burial. Sunday, we say, he is risen. And the response is, he is risen indeed. And we live in light of that fact. But for those who are hostile to such things and they have contempt for such things, at a certain point, it's not enough just to say ugly, mean things about the people that they don't like and the people that they see as the problem. At a certain point, they escalate to taking action. And their view of justice, if it is not real justice, their view of justice will have to be corrected. If not in human terms, in this life, it will have to be corrected by God. And it will be. He will. He will render to each the consequences. So what we should pray for, what we should call for is repentance. Because otherwise, what we can expect is judgment. We can expect that there will be a reckoning that is terrible to behold. Do we want to be New Babylon in the book of Revelation, where the whole world is mourning us, but wanting to stand well back because they, they don't want to be caught up in what happens to us? Is that what we want our legacy to be here in America? It's not what I want. I would guess and hope that it's not what you want. If you listen to my podcast, I wouldn't. I would assume you agree that that's not what we want. It might not be up to us. It might be that all that's up to us is that we do justice, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God, Micah 6.8, on an individual basis. But these are difficult times that we're going into, economically, politically, socially, theologically. We need to be going to God's word. We need to be asking God for wisdom, like James talks about. He doesn't just talk about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. He also talks about, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. 
He also talks about how we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Well, I think we're about to see our faith tested in many ways, and we want to be found faithful. If we want to be joyful in the midst of being tried, we're going to have to know what is true and what is good according to God, weigh and measure with an equal application of the law, as well as calls to avail ourselves of God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. While there is time, at a certain point, time's up. When the cup of wrath is filled up, it'll be poured out. But if that time is not yet, well, then we should be encouraging others to know Christ, to follow Christ, to trust in Christ in any event. Like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.